Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we're in the series. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians or the letter of Galatians that Paul the Apostle wrote to a geographical region of churches in what is known that time as Galatia. In our time, uh, would be somewhere around Turkey in that area. And we've been here. I don't know what week this is. I think maybe week eight, week nine. We have a few more weeks to go. Uh, but we're turning a corner this morning, and um, we're going to see that Paul begins. He's been. It's been a a rather lengthy reflection on the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now he's going to turn the corner and he's going to begin to talk about how that, uh, what that begins to produce in us, and how it begins to produce that, and what kind of lives should flow out of all that he's been teaching us about the gospel. So, if you would come with me this morning uh, to Galatians chapter four, we're going to read verses four through verse twenty. And uh, it's if you have a Bible, you can open it and, and look there. It'll be on the screen behind me. It is also printed in your worship folder for you uh, as we read this passage together. Let's read uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit God, excuse me, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored in vain over you. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for also I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, and here he's talking about the opposition party, the circumcision party that we've been talking about. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Uh, if you look in your outline, you'll see that I that the way that I worded your intro is that in the Bible, the indicative always comes first and then the imperative. And then I ask the question, what happens or what goes wrong when we reverse that order? So here's what, what, I, what, I, what I want you to understand about this. Um, we've been reflecting for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks now about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about what Paul says about the grace of God and, and who we are in him and who we are loved by him, welcomed by him, delighted in. He delights in us. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if I've told this story. And so I probably have, and I, I, but anyway, my, my daughter seems to be the one that is driving this home to my heart these days. And so, again, I know it's another Abby bedtime story. I'm putting Abby to bed not long ago, and she, did I, if I told this story, then just tell me and I'll quit in the middle or something. But I, I, I said, she said, Daddy, I want to marry you. Have I told you all this in this setting? In this setting, I've said it? 
Okay, well, anyway. And so I said, Abby, you know, you can't marry me, but one day, you know, I will, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna, I will help you find somebody like me that you can marry. Oh, daddy, there's nobody like you. Right? And, 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 in the gospel, the gospel, that's the gospel. That's what the gospel is. The gospel, when we talk about the gospel, it is, it is hearing God say that. There's nobody like you. I delight in you. I love you because of what Jesus has done. Uh, to give us a righteousness by which we can live before God in faith, that, that God comes and says, I delight in you. There's nobody like you. That's what I mean when I talk about the indicative always coming first and then the imperative. If you're an English major or if you're an English teacher, you're tracking with me on that. But religion says I obey and therefore I'm accepted. The imperative, what, what I'm supposed to do, leads to the indicative, who I am in Christ. But the gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel, as we've been looking at here in this letter that Paul's writing, is I'm accepted and therefore I obey. The imperative lead, I mean, excuse me, the indicative leads to the imperative. Duty always flows out of identity. And what we're supposed to do comes after what God has done for us and in us. And Paul does this in nearly all of his letters. If you go to Romans, if you go to Galatians, if you go to Ephesians, if you go to Colossians, he starts with theology. He starts with doctrine. He starts by describing who God is and how he has worked powerfully in us to rescue us, to save us. And then once he's established all that, he moves on to applications. And the reason he does that is that all true Christianity, in all true Christianity, the indicative comes first and then the imperative. I'm accepted and therefore I obey. Now, if we reverse the order, we fall into the error of the Galatians and the obedience that we produce will be the obedience of a slave and not the obedience of a son. And that's what Paul that's what Paul's meditating on here at the very beginning of this passage we picked this morning in verses four, five and six. If we if we do this, our obedience will be weak and childish and ineffective and not God glorifying. And I don't know if you remember the quote from Richard Lovelace that that we that we looked at a few weeks ago. But he says that if we're not sure God loves and accepts us, accepts us, if we're not sure if we're not positive, if we're not grounded in the indicative, then we will be radically insecure and our insecurity will drive us to do all sorts of religious things and good things and moral things and good works to prove that we're worthy of being loved and accepted. But even in doing those things, we'll be proud and full of hate and envy and jealousy because the insecurity is there and it's defining and so I want to give you a test. I know a lot of you are, you know, you're here and you're wondering about us and you're, you know, I don't know about this church and you're trying to figure out. But I want to give you a test as you think about the Christianity you've been a part of. Just just think about this question in the churches that you've been in and the pastors that you've sat under. Do they spend more time talking about the imperative or do they spend more time talking about the indicative? Now, for for nine weeks, we've been talking about the the indicative. This is who God is. This is the gospel. This is who you are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beginning this morning, we're turning a corner in the first imperative verb in the whole letter. Now, think about that. The first time Paul tells us to do anything. Is here in verse eight. Or actually in verse 12, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me. The first imperative verb is there in verse 12. And so we're moving from a meditation on the gospel to a further meditation on the practical implications of the gospel. And so three things we're going to do this morning. I want, I want you to see three things. I want you to see first the goal of the sonship that Paul's talking about us, talking about to us here in verses four, five, six and seven. Secondly, the community that produces that sonship, sonship. And then thirdly, the gospel dynamics of that community. So 
there's your three points. We're going to talk about the goal of our sonship, the community that produces that sonship that Paul's been talking to us about, and then thirdly, the gospel dynamics of that community that produces the sonship. Okay, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something kind of strange this morning, uh, and I promise this is okay. I got permission from the powers that be to do this, but we're going to go all the way to the end of the text, and then we're going to work our way back. Okay, so we're going to be in reverse order this morning. So as we think about the goal of our sonship, I want you to come all the way to the bottom of the page there to verse 19. And Paul says in verse 19. My little children. For whom I'm in anguish or excuse me, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, this is what everything that Paul said to this point should produce. He wants you see that phrase there, Christ to be formed in them. This is the goal. This is the goal of our sonship that Christ would be formed in us. Christ fully developed in your lives, the New Living Translation says. Or the message, Eugene Peterson's translation, he says it, Christ's life becoming visible in your lives. Now, the, here, here the Greek word is the word morpho, from which we get our English word morph. And being a true postmodern generation guy, I, I immediately thought of Morpheus. But not the Morpheus from Greek mythology, but Lawrence Fishburne, Morpheus, the Matrix, the cool black dude in the long black, you know, long black, um, you know, leather jacket thing. Um, But if you think, where did Morpheus in the Matrix come from? Morpheus, that the character's name was was taken from a a Greek god in ancient Greek literature, uh, the Greek god of dreams, Morpheus. It's where this root comes from. And Ovid, in his Metamorphosis, who's an ancient Greek uh, writer, he says of this Greek god, no other can match his artistry in counterfeiting men, their voice, their gait, their face, their moods, and two, he imitates their dress precisely in the words they use most frequently. I mean, this Greek god Morpheus, the god of dreams, he, he was an imitator, he was a mime, he was the god who could come and he could take whatever shape necessary to, to induce a certain emotional state in a person's dream. He, he imitated people's gait, their voice, their face, their moods, and even the words they used. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And it's an interesting choice of words. He's saying that the goal is that we morph. And the word morph refers to a reconfiguration of the parts of an object that result in a different shape or appearance. When something morphs, it changes shape or appearance. Or even texture. It looks different than it was before. It feels different than it was before. It sounds different than it did before. And I want to say to you this morning, American Christianity is full of people who claim to know Jesus, but have not been changed by the experience. And and we, and if you're not a Christian, I hope this will be helpful to you. We believe in what we call conversion. We believe uh, that Christianity, we've said it over and over again, Christianity is not about good, bad people becoming good people. It's about dead people being made alive. And the practical application of what Paul is daring to say here to us this morning is, is that you can't stay, stay the same. And if you're not changing, if there's not something in you that's morphing you, you've truly not encountered yet Jesus Christ. Because what it means to be a Christian is that a new power has entered into your life and is changing you whether you will it to or not. From the inside out. If you belong to Jesus, then this is what God is doing. And all that he's doing in arranging the circumstances of your life. And one of my favorite passages of scripture, Jonathan's going to put it up on the screen. comes from Romans chapter 8. 
And we're, you know, because we're Presbyterians, we love all this high fluting language about predestination and that kind of stuff. But that's not really the point of what Paul's saying. He says here in these verses, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn from among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those he called, he also justified and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, look at the beginning of that of that passage. Paul says, for those who God foreknew, he predestined. Now, what that language means is, is God's on his throne. He's in control of all the circumstances of your life. Nothing comes into your life that he has not sent there. And all that he is doing in all of the ordering of your circumstances, no matter where you find yourself, no matter what your life holds for you right now, no matter what course you are on, this is the thing in all of his predestining and and foreknowing of you. He is doing this. He's conforming you to the image of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And all of the hard things you're having to go through and all of the great joys of your life, God is working actively, bringing into our lives the conditions by which he might conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And that word image is is a very important word, isn't it? It's one of the early theological terms that shows up in our scriptures when when we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God made the man and the woman after his own image. He made them to be a mirror reflecting his glory to the creation. And Paul says that in all that God is doing in your life, he is doing it so that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus, that you might be a mirror reflecting Jesus to the culture, to the city you live in, to the kids you're raising, to the friends you're befriending. Now, in the message, Eugene Peterson translates this phrase until Christ's life becomes visible in your life. Now, the root, the root that we're getting at here can also be translated embody. And to embody something means that you make tangible something that can't otherwise be touched or experienced, or you make visible something that can't otherwise be seen. What Paul's getting at and what he's praying for for the Galatians here is Jesus is not here, but you are. And he means for for the Galatians' lives to become, that that Jesus' life would become visible through their life. He means for his message, his gospel, to be heard through our words. He means for the love of Jesus, for the world to be expressed through our love. And it's interesting, if you look in the Bible, the word Christian is used two times in the entire Bible, but the word disciple is used 269 times. A student, a follower, an apprentice. The goal of all that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing in saving us is that Christ would be formed in us. And so John says it in his letter in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And Paul says elsewhere that the goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings and to become like him. And parents, this is the way God intends for your kids to come to know Jesus as you, as he's formed in you. This is the way God intends for our city to come know him as he's formed in us and we begin to embody his love and his purposes for our city in the lives that we're living. That's the goal. The goal is that Christ would be formed in us. But let's move on to point number two, and that is that how, how does this goal, how does this goal get produced? What, what is, how does what Paul's saying here happen? How does this happen? And what we see here is beginning in verse 12 through the the end, through verse 20, Paul is modeling for us in writing this letter the way that we come into the goal of our sonship. 
to see Christ formed in us. He's writing to confront the Galatians and warn them of their error. And in verses 12 through 20, we get a snapshot of what that looks like. It's really what pastoral ministry is, and so I've been wrestling with that this week a lot. Uh, but not just that, it's, it's true of all of the Christian community and all true Christian friendship. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, if we are going to be people in whom Christ is formed, we need to be befriended well. And I know, I know a lot of, I'll know a lot of you because I've, I've talked to you, you know, you're, you're coming and you're with us on Sundays and then, you know, but your kids are going to, you know, there's some things that you're having to wrestle with and I realize that that's the case. But I need to, I need to say to you this morning, I, I don't care where it is. I pray that it's with us, but you need a Christian community you're accountable to and who will watch over your life. You need that. You can't get done what God has set out to do in your life without that. And Paul is modeling for us not just the need for people who are willing to draw close and confront us when we're in sin and idolatry, but he's showing us how this works. And so I've put... In your in your outline, there are some three principles of the kind of community that Paul is leading us to consider this morning. OK, and, and the three principles are just this genuine anguish for one another, a willingness to incarnate in one another's lives and a willingness to move close and confront one another. And so we're just going to walk through those three things this morning and see this is how this happens. It happens first uh, when, when when we are a community of people who, who live genuinely anguished for one another. And so look at verse 19. Paul says, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, again, here it's an interesting metaphor. Uh, it seems a little strange for a man to talk about labor pains. Amen, ladies. But I'm here to tell you, I've seen four of these and you don't have to be you don't have to be a very smart person to know that it hurts. Right. Didn't happen to me. Uh, but I was there and I can report to you that it's painful. It's hard. And so maybe I need to invite a mom up here to tell us all about the experience. We'll do that another time. Uh, but, you know, and sometimes it takes hours and hours and it's just hard. Now, so I need to ask you a question. If this is where we start, you know, if, if the kind of community that is required to bring about the, the, the purpose of our sonship is a community that anguishes over, then who do you anguish over? Now, and I need to re- I need to repent. My wife is so beautiful in, in this anguishing. She, she goes into despair because of her anguish. So she falls over on the other side. But I don't anguish about anything. I mean, I anguish about what you think of me. I anguish about getting the kids in bed early enough so that I can have some me time before I go to bed. But I don't, I don't, I don't anguish. I don't anguish over. I, I don't even anguish over my kids' lives. Not the way Paul's talking about here. Not the way a mom anguishes in childbirth. But Paul's language here is emotionally charged. If you'll see, if you go through this passage in verse 10, he's afraid. He entreats. In verse 19, he's in anguish. He's perplexed. These are emotionally charged words. And if we're going to become the kind of church God calls us to be, we're going to, have, we're going to be mad at one another. Uh, we're going to offend one another. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to aggravate one another. We're going to bring great sadness to one another and great joy into one another's lives. And all of those are part of being involved and emotionally involved in one another's lives. But the one thing we should never be is indifferent. The one thing we can't be is indifferent. 
We should celebrate one another's successes. We should grieve one another's losses. We should ache for one another when children are rebellious. You know, your sin and your selfishness should keep me up at night. And mine should keep you up. You know, my sin and my weakness and my immaturity as the pastor of this church should keep you up, I'm telling you. And it should keep you in the church. And not be the occasion for you to leave and to go somewhere else because that's what the church is. The church is a group of people who've covenanted with one another to see Christ formed in one another, to see our sin overcome and our brokenness healed. And it's hard and it's heart-wrenching, but it's the work that we've been called to. And that's what it means to befriend someone. To look into that person's life and to see the beauty of the person that they can become and to say, I'm committed to that. No matter how messy or how hard it gets. And then to live in anguish for the glory of that person to be revealed. For Christ to be formed. That's what marriage is. That's what befriending one another is. And so we're to be a people, a community that anguish for one another. But then secondly, a second principle that Paul gives us here, and that is that that we are to become a people who incarnate with one another. And if you'll look uh, in verse 12, Paul says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And this was, in many ways, Paul's ministry model, this model of incarnation. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, he says it this way. He says, For though I am free from all, Paul says, this is Paul writing, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win some. To the Jew I become as a Jew. To those under the law I become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. To the weak I become weak. This was Paul's ministry model. He, he incarnated. And that word literally means to enflesh. Paul did everything he, excuse me, he could to get himself into the shoes. To get himself into the experience of the people that he was ministering to. He, he, he got out of himself, though I'm free, I've become a servant. And he put himself, he, he put himself in bondage to the desires and the longings and the expectations of the people he was ministering to. And what he does in this passage is, is he contrasts the way that he's treated the Galatians with the way the, his opponents have. So look at verse 17, and there Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out and make, so that you make, make, make much of them. So, what he's saying is, is the Judaizers are flattering the Galatians, but it's just really a way to get from the Galatians what they want. They're not loving the Galatians. They're using these people. Their love's not love. It's manipulation. I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever been over to somebody's house, you know, and they, and they pull out the fine china and everything is just absolutely perfect. And about 30 minutes into the meal, it dawns on you, you know, this isn't, this isn't about me, is it? about you. I mean, have you ever had experience like that? There's a flattery, there's, but, but it's not love, it's manipulation. And Paul says, I became like you. I entered your world. I moved towards you in love. I was for you, not for myself. There's an unselfing Paul's referring to here. An intentional forsaking of my agenda and my rights and my preferences for yours. Paul says, I was free. I was absolutely free. But I made myself a slave and a servant to your needs and your preferences and your dreams. Now, nobody has explained this or said it better than B.B. Warfield does. And so I have a long quote from him that I just want you to. I mean, this this just absolutely undoes me to hear this great Princeton theologian talk about this this movement of incarnation. But here's the way he says it. 
He says, God took such thought for us that he made no account of himself. Now, just think about that statement. God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, took such thought for us. He did. He made no account of himself. And to the immeasurably calm of divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter. I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal the divine purpose to save that he thought nothing of his divine majesty. Nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness. Jesus made no account of himself. He goes on, love then means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption into them. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means entering into every person's hopes and fears, longings and dreams. It means many sidedness of spirit. Multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their life becomes ours. It means all the experience of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. Isn't that great? Paul's saying, I became like you. I entered into your world. My heart was battered and bruised and shattered because of your pain and your suffering. And love makes a big deal out of the other person. It doesn't make a big deal out of itself. And Jesus humbled himself. He became nothing to make much of us. And so incarnation, this movement of considering one another and intentionally moving towards one another in love, becoming servants of one another, though we're free. For the sake of seeing Christ formed in us. But there's a third principle. And the reason we move. The reason we move towards one another. And this is the hard part to me. Paul says there in verse 12. I entreat you. Become as I am. For I also have become as you are. And so there's an insistence there. He says I've become as I am. There's an insistence on the truth. If you go down to verse 16. This is my favorite phrase that he throws out. Because I, I, I so get this. But in verse 16 he says to these people. And remember he's been confronting them. He's been harsh. Uh, he's been very, he's been very, very firm with them and in, in warning them of the danger of the course of action they're on. And then in verse 16, you can just hear his heart, how it's breaking, because he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he says, they make much of you. I mean, the Judaizers have resorted to flattery. They're making much of the Galatians. And I'm here to tell you, if you don't, if that works powerfully on the human heart. And Paul says, I told you the truth. I loved you enough to tell you the truth. And now I've become your enemy. It reminded me of a story in, in Jeremiah chapter 27 in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah 27, the, prop, the, the king Zedekiah, the Babylonian army is coming against him. And Jeremiah is sent by God to the king to say, they're going to come. They're going to wipe you out. You're going into exile. And the king gathers all of his most trusted advisors and his in his prophets that are on the take and he brings them all together and all these guys because they love their jobs and because of the kickbacks that they receive from the position they're in. They keep saying, no, 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 Jeremiah is an idiot. Don't listen to him. You're, you will be victorious, great king. It's going to be OK. Everything's going to work just fine. You are great and powerful and mighty. And that guy over there doesn't stand a chance against, against you, O king. And Jeremiah, God sends Jeremiah in there. And about 10 times in the passage, Jeremiah says, don't listen to me. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. And I remember I journaled about this last year when we were in that portion of the scripture in our community Bible reading. In my journal entry, I wrote this. I said, I confess I love the counsel that proves my innocence, not the counsel that condemns me. 
Oh, Lord, give me a willingness to seek out my critics and listen to them and make me suspicious of flattering tongues. You see, what we're learning from Paul here is a true friend is not somebody who makes you feel good about yourself all the time and who, you know, who endlessly affirms you. A good friend is a person who affirms you, but also confronts you. I mean, of course, friends affirm one another. But the true friend is the one who loves you enough to affirm you when you're beat up and discouraged and who loves you enough to confront you when you're arrogant and selfish. So be careful. I mean, this is hard. I mean, this is hard. Because our culture does not allow for a definition of love that includes this. Love is, don't judge me, just accept me unconditionally. Uh, Our culture does not allow for a definition of love that involves confrontation. But the scripture knows of no other kind of love. In Ephesians 4, Paul says there's only one way. There's only one way that you and I are going to grow into the maturity that God desires for us, not being tossed to and fro, but growing up in every way into him. And that is that if we can learn the art of speaking the truth and love to one another, of confronting one another in our sin and idolatry. And I'm terrible at it. So I, you know, repent along with me of that this morning. But see, this is how this works. This is how the goal happens in a community that is willing to live genuinely anguished for one another. Incarnating and moving into one another's lives and being willing to confront one another. That's the goal. That's how it happens. And so we have to ask then, as we come to a close, then what's keeping us from being this kind of community? And how does the gospel that Paul's been preaching to the Galatians and to us in this letter come and create in us the capacity to be this kind of community? And see, working our way back a little further, if you come to verses 8 through 10, you'll see that Paul is making a startling claim here. He's talking to them about idolatry. And Paul's Paul's basic message here is that I if if we understand why we do the things we do and what it is that keeps us enslaved to these sinful patterns of behavior that if you look under every sin if you trace it back if you keep asking why and you go all the way back into the depths of your heart what you're going to find is that under every sin is idolatry and by an idol by idolatry here's what we mean we mean an idol is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone An idol is anything that is central to me. It's anything that seems essential or absolutely necessary. It's anything by by which I live and on which I depend. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my attention, my energy, and my money to it effortlessly. And here's what I want you to understand, and this is a a friend of ours, or, or he's not a friend of ours, but a pastor in our denomination, his name's Tim Keller, he, he says it this way. He says, idols are not bad things. They're good things made the best thing. He says, here, Tim Keller, he says, idols are not normal-sized desires for something evil, but oversized desires for something good. And that's what the Scripture is getting at when it talks us through this issue of idolatry. The Greek word it uses, not here, but in other places, is a Greek word, it's epithumia, and it literally means over-desire. That if I had this thing, then I would be happy. If I had this thing, I would be somebody. An idol takes a good, normal desire and it turns it into an enslaving desire. It turns it into a drive. It, it binds us. It puts chains on us. Because whatever that thing is, i got to have it. I've got to have that thing. I'll do anything to get that thing. I'll do anything to keep that thing. Now, what's so striking about the verses here and what Paul is claiming about this particularly particular form of idolatry that the Galatians are being tempted towards is this. Remember, he's been saying 
you know, a group has been has, has come and has been preaching the need for the moral law. Hey, do this. Follow the rules. And at the end, God will love you and everything will be great. And Paul says, look at verse verse eight. He says, formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that were by nature not God's. The Galatians, before they came to know Christ, were absolutely immoral, pagan and wicked. But now they've become Christians and they've gotten religious. They found morality. And Paul says that if they follow the advice of the Judaizers and if they bind themselves to the obligation to keep the law, if they do this, they will end up just as enslaved to idolatry as they were before. I mean, can you imagine that? But this kind of idolatry is even more dangerous because you don't know you're dead. I mean, the unreligious person, the pagan person knows he's living far from God, but the religious person doesn't. And that's why Paul's so afraid for the Galatians. He's terrified that despite all of their good works and religion, they're far from God. They're trusting in their own good works to save them, and they're completely blind and they can't see it. And the thing in this kind of idolatry, the thing these Galatians have to have, the thing that religious, moral, upright, good standing, nice, dutiful, obedient people, the thing they have to have is a good reputation and a righteousness that it comes from their moral performance. That if, you know, and if we live that way, it will undercut our ability to befriend one another because the goal, the idol, is approval. The goal is that you think I'm good or nice, that I'm well thought of. That's what I need. That's what informs my sense of identity. If I don't have that, if I don't have that, then, then I mean, what do I have? And so how does a per- person who's enslaved in that way, how do they live? Well, they'll always be using people, even in being kind, and there's no way they'll be willing to do good by confronting idolatry. And so Paul says, you know, something's got to come and undo the slavery to which we are we have given ourselves. And in verse nine, he gives us the clue to how this happens. And in verse nine, he says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, you see, there's there's the gospel. Paul corrects himself mid sentence and he says the gospel being a Christian is not that, you know, God, it's not all the things you're doing to make yourself acceptable to him. No, it's that he knows you. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, then you're known. God knows you. And of course, that means much more than he loves you. He knows you exist. It means he loves you. He delights in you. There's nobody like you. And so what the gospel does is the gospel comes and it provides the security and the, the emotional wealth we need to be the kind of community that produces sonship in one another. That's what the gospel does. That the one who created the universe, the king of the universe, the one who really matters, he thinks this of me. He knows me. He's the one we've been created for. His voice is the voice we need to hear. His verdict is the only one that can silence our hearts. You know, he thinks this of me. Now I can move out. Not in fear, not in insecurity, but confident, and secure, not emotionally needy, but emotionally wealthy. And so we can overcome our self-interest and our self-absorption. And genuinely move towards one another. We can forget ourselves in serving one another. And we can receive correction. Because whatever it might be, there's no accusation that can be greater than his love for us. And nothing we can be accused of can forfeit his love. Because I'm not loved based upon my performance, but upon Christ's. We don't have to brand every truth teller an enemy. We can welcome and receive the truth in the context of friendship. And not have the friendship threatened. Because our emotional needs are met by God and not by the friendship. And we can give correction. We can risk, risk disapproval. You see how this works? 
The gospel has to come home and has to root us in the reality that we it's not that we know him, but he knows us. And it's that truth that creates the ability in us to be the community he's called us to be in order that we might do the good work of seeing Christ formed in one another. And so let's pray together this morning as we come to his table. Um, You pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the great king of the universe who has ordained all things to come to pass according to your will and that those you foreknew you have predestined to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so that in all that we do, in all the circumstances of our lives, that is the great work you're working out for us. And you have called us into community with one another that we might be a people who do the hard work of befriending one another, that Christ may be formed in us. And so now as we come to your table, the one that you've prepared for us as a means by which we ground ourselves as a community of people in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you come uh, and bless this time of our service this morning? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you see, if the gospel is absolutely essential to forming us as the kind of community that can produce in one another the goal of our sonship that he would be formed in us, then this meal, this this practice that we this meal we partake of with one another on a monthly basis is absolutely essential because it is at this table where he most powerfully reveals the truth that Christianity is not about knowing him, it's about being known by him. It's at this table where the gospel is proclaimed for all who would have ears to hear. And so in preparing ourselves to come to the Lord's table, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And would you recite the Apostles' Creed? So let's stand together. And in response to the truth that you've heard in the in the um, in the sermon this morning, would you uh, would you recite this creed, this ancient historical creed together with me? I ask Christian in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this table, we partake of Christ's body broken for us and we drink his blood shed for us. Here it is that the gospel is put at the very center of our life together. It's in this meal that we share. Now, one of the things we one of the things we try to do to you is to ask you, because we believe the scripture calls us to do this, to think through a process of self-examination in three areas. And first is your faith in Jesus. This is a meal that Christ has set aside for those who are on pilgrimage with him through this world, but whose faith is in him. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Is he your savior? Do you belong to him? Uh, We believe this is a meal that is for those who have made that commitment to him, that have the assurance that they are not that they have known him, but that he has known them and that that same God who knows them has provided this meal for them uh, to partake.
Uh, number two, just just process of self-examination, not only faith, but accountability. In other words, what we believe, what we said from this passage this morning, that is if your faith is in Jesus, then by definition, that means that you're, you have a relationship with him that is based also upon you having a relationship with his people. So and, and there's some confu- there was some confusion about this. So I want to make this very clear what we mean by that. You don't have to be a member of this church. Uh, you may be in between membership at a church, but at some point. In your uh, walk with Jesus, have you gone public with your intention to serve and love and follow him? Have you stood before a people somewhere at some time and made a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ? And if not, come join us. Um, but, but, but this is a public meal uh, and, and is meant for those who have publicly gone on record with him. And thirdly, accountability or, or reconciliation. Thirdly, the scripture is very clear. Uh, that this is a meal of reconciliation. It is in this meal that Jesus, we, rep- we, we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood to reconcile us to the Father. It would be a great act of hypocrisy for us to come and to partake of his body and blood if there was a need for us to work reconciliation out in relationships uh, with which we enjoy with one another. The Bible says if you come to the altar and you remember your brother has an offense against you, go and be made right with him first. And then come back to the altar. So as you think through that, those those, you know, areas of self-examination this morning, we do this every first Sunday of the month. We'll be here next next week. There's no shame or next month. There's no there's no shame in just saying, you know what? I got some things I need to go. There's some work I need to go do. Uh, We'll be here again uh, next month. Um, But if but if your conscience is clear in those three areas, then we welcome you to come and partake of this meal. Um, While we do this, there will be there will be people uh, stationed at the, the foot of each Um, way you can come, take the bread and take the cup, return to your seats, and after everybody's been served, we'll all partake of it together. Uh, At the same time, Jonathan and um, Gene Lanehart, who's one of our community group leaders, will be stationed over here to the sides. Uh, We realize that that you may, there may be areas where you you just need somebody to pray for you. Uh, There there may be a healing uh, physically or emotionally or, or relationally that you just need somebody to to, to just lay their hands on you and pray for you. And we want to provide an opportunity for you to, to have that. So those guys will be there. I would encourage you to go and, and talk with them and let them pray for you and let them pastor you and care for you um, during, during this time of celebrating this meal together. Okay? We come to the Lord's table. Uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus had gathered with his disciples and they were celebrating the Passover meal together. And at the meal, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this bread is my body broken for you. After supper, he took the cup and raising it, he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Take, eat and drink and do so in remembrance of me. So let's pray this morning as I pray. Those of you who are helping serve, if you would come um, and, and we will prepare our hearts now to receive. Uh, this supper. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful provision that you have made for us in your son. Uh, As we come this morning, I pray that you would do what you promised to do, and that is to be present with us in a very special way as we celebrate this meal together. Come draw near to us, even as we draw near to you, Jesus. Uh, We do this in remembrance of you. We do this mindful of you. Uh, May this be a time of glorying in your salvation, in your gospel. May you drive home, may you beat it into our heads. 
your sacrifice on our behalf, your body broken, your blood shed, which is our righteousness. And may we turn away and forsake of all of our deadly doings. May we lay them down and rest and receive you alone as the only way to be made right with the Father. And may that produce a power. May, may the power of the Holy Spirit enter our lives. May the spiritual power come as we receive anew this morning our adoption as your sons, as we partake of this blessed supper together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you feel led, you come. So now, if your faith is in Jesus, uh, then you can receive the benediction that is yours. Uh, that no matter where you go, whether it is you're leaving to go walk a road marked with suffering, or whether it is a, a happy place, um, that he goes with you and extends to you in this benediction the promise of his presence and peace. Uh, and that is our hope. So if your faith is in Jesus, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.